You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Last week we looked at Mark chapter 11, and if you were with us, you saw, we saw that Jesus had this fig tree, and uh, he ended up cursing the fig tree, and it was representative of this temple, of these Jewish leaders, of the, the people of God, of the leadership of the, of the people of God, that were corrupt, that weren't following God's plan. And so this passage, this idea continues on in chapter 12. Mark is taking, walking us through this final week of Jesus' life. And so chapter 12 picks up where 11 left off. Jesus is in the temple, and at the end of 11, the, the Jewish leaders have come, and they've questioned his authority. And they've said, well, how do you have the right to do any of this, to overthrow the tables, to curse a fig tree, to call us out? And, and, and more or less, Jesus says, my authority comes from God. And so there they are in the, in the temple, and different religious leaders are trying to figure it out. And you can just picture it, right? They're, they're in the temple, and there's lots of people coming around him. They're learning the words have gone out that, that Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, that miracle worker is here in the temple. It's Passover time. People are excited. People are there to worship. People are there to make sacrifices. Many people in the temple are there just to hear the words of Jesus. And then on the backside of the, this temple court and the Gentile court, there's the religious leaders and they're huddled together trying to figure out what are we going to do about it. In fact, in chapter 11, it says that they've been plotting to kill him. And so they're trying to figure out what are we going to do? How can we, how can we convince the people not to follow <coughs> this Jesus of Nazareth? And so they come up with ideas. What if we did this? What if we did that? I got it. I got a trick. Let me go ask him. And so a couple of the religious leaders will come up and, and they'll ask him a story. And, and in the midst of it, Jesus always seems to outwit them. And so several of the religious leaders have come. They figured out what they're going to do. And they come and they join in the crowd. And Jesus sees them. And he begins to tell a story. And I love how Jesus can use a story to, to dig something deeper, to, to talk about the religious leaders, but even to talk about us 2,000 years later. And so he begins to tell this story at the beginning of chapter 12, right? It says, verse 1, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. This was commonplace. A, a landowner would, would have a vineyard, and they would rent it out to a tenant, to farmers. And then at the end of the season, they would come back. And, and this one even had a wine press already. And so it was anticipated that they would take the grapes, and they would turn it into wine. And, and so he sends a servant to go pick up several bottles of wine. It was common that the owner of the land would get 25 to 30%. Of the, of the proceeds of the profit. And so it's a simple business. This is a normal transaction to go and come back. But Jesus paints this picture of a great vineyard. Like he makes a point to, to point out that he put a wall around it, a wall to protect them from animals or from enemies. That he dug in a wine press already, that they wouldn't have to travel anywhere, that they'd be able to do all their business there within the enclosement of the walls. That they even put a watchtower to watch out for, for wild beasts or for thieves. This was a great vineyard. The point is, the owner set him up for success. The owner gave him everything that he could want. If the owner took care of them from the beginning and cared for them and loved them and, and provided everything that they could ever need. And so they had the, the season. 
And the grapes came and they picked the grapes and, and they pressed them and they made their wine. And now it's time the owner has come and, and done what is a normal business transaction. Sent a servant to collect his 25%. But it says, verse 3, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Obviously, this must be some mistake, right? The, the owners must have not known that this was the servant or must have misunderstood must have thought that it was a thief or, or someone trying to trick him, and so they beat him, and they sent him away. Surely this can't be on purpose. So the owner, it says, then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. You got to think if you're one of the servants of this man, when it comes time, he's like, who's going? And everyone just looks down, you know, no eye contact. Like when we say, who wants to close in prayer at small group? No, no one looks, right? And so all the servants look away and finally he's like, Chucky, it's your turn. Nuts. All right. And so he goes and he gets beaten and they send him back. Obviously the, the tenants are doing this on purpose. They know what they're doing and they just don't care. They know this is the owner's representative, and they keep rejecting him. But in doing so, they're rejecting the owner. Some of Jesus' parables are kind of hard to understand. This one's pretty clear, right? I got to imagine everyone there, the crowd that's around Jesus, the crowd of common people that believe he's the Messiah, are standing next to the religious leaders. And they're like, oh, that's about you, right? And, and the religious leaders are just looking down, and, and they're just fuming. They're mad. Because it's so clear, the owner is God. And he's given us so much, and he's cared for us, and he's set us up for success. But then time after again, he had to send prophet after prophet, someone after someone to come and kind of call the nation of Israel back. And time after time, the leaders would reject them. Until we're about to see he sends the son. Verse 6 says, He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. Surely, this, this son looks just like the owner. Surely they'll respect him. Surely they'll, they'll not beat him. Surely they'll not kill him. Surely they'll not put any harm on his head. They'll, they'll pay, pay the fee and send the son on his way. Because this was the heir. This is the one that looks like God. This is the one sent. But it says, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Thinking if they take out the rightful owner, the now possession is ten, nine-tenths of the law, right? This is going to be our land. We can do with it whatever we want if we reject the heir as well. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The religious leaders are here listening to this story. Everyone in the crowd would have been thrown off at this point, right? Everyone in the crowd would have been like, whoa, wait, what? You don't kill the owner's son. The owner's going to come after you now. Right or wrong, they might have looked down on the servants. When they killed the servants, well, that happens. But the owner's son, no, you don't mess with the owner's son. Everyone in the crowd knows that they've gone too far, that they've crossed the line, except for the religious leaders, and they know something completely different. They know Jesus is calling them out right now. Because in their secret little meetings in the corners of the temple, in their secret meetings in the alleyways behind, 
They've been plotting to kill Jesus. We saw that in chapter 11, verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed by his teaching. He just called out these religious leaders, and he said that, I know you're looking to kill the son, the son of the owner, the son of God. So they've been looking to, to kill him. And so the, this parable is very clear, right? The owner was God. The vineyard's the people of God. The servants were the prophets. The, the tenants were, were the religious leaders. The son is Jesus himself. And they're plotting to kill the son. And they will do so, as we'll see several days later. And Jesus comes to, and shares this story, and he shares that the son is killed, and, and then he asks the crowd, he asks everyone there, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? People start whispering to each other, I know what I'd do. I'll tell you what he should do. Maybe they're even turning to the religious leaders, not realizing that they've been plotting to kill Jesus. They're like, what do you think they should do? What should happen to him? And he says he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. He'll come and kill them and give it to others. That he's been, God's been trying to rescue the Jews, trying to rescue the Jewish people, and even now he sent his son, and the religious leaders are plotting to kill him. And the kingdom is going to, they're going to kill him. And the kingdom is going to be given to everyone else, to the Gentiles. Because but they, what they don't know is Jesus will rise. Because Jesus then says, haven't you read the passage of scripture? Now catch that. He's telling, the, he's telling this crowd, but he's specifically, in my picture, I just imagine him looking right at the religious leaders. Haven't you read the scripture? He's calling them out like, don't you know? As if to ask a Christian that was born and raised in the church, haven't you ever heard John 3.16? It's that clear. Obviously, I know the scriptures. Obviously, I'm the religious leader of all these people. How could you question if I've read it? And he says, haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's prophesying the one, the stone you've rejected. You religious leaders that are plotting to kill me, let me tell you, this is going to be the cornerstone. This is going to be the foundation that the entire kingdom of God is going to continue to be built on. This is the foundation that the church is going to be built on. This is the foundation that salvation will be built on. This is the foundation that all forgiveness will come from. That you might try to destroy it, you might reject it, but what you're doing is setting the groundwork that this foundation, this cornerstone will be laid. And from here, the kingdom of God will be built. From here, salvation will be built as Jesus rises from the dead. And he's saying, you might have tried to reject this. But what you're doing is building something great, something grand. It says, then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew they had spoken, he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went. They were afraid. There's several themes that we see throughout the book of Mark, but one of those is this opposition. These two, two opposing views is one is belief, one is faith. And the other is fear. Throughout the book of Mark, we see people that have great faith. And they believe him and they trust Jesus no matter what. They put their lives in his hands. And then they, uh, there's others that the opposite in Mark is not faith and, and uh, it's not belief and unbelief. It's belief and fear. 
There's people caught up in fear. People that are, have a stronghold, a strangled by fear in their lives instead of having faith that God has them. And so the religious leaders leave because they're afraid. They have this fear. And they go away trying to figure out what are they going to do. So we look at this parable, there's, there's two clear lessons for us. First is that if, if you come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, have you rejected him? Or have you rejected him? That there's this idea that we have Jesus as the cornerstone and, and some people that are rejecting him. This crowd, there's many that are believe he's the Messiah. And there's these religious leaders that they should know better. They should know the text and yet they've turned their back on him. Then there's those that are following him. As a believer, the other lesson we could take from this little parable is, what have we done with Jesus? Right? What have we done with with our vineyard? Are, Are we accepting Jesus? Are we striving to follow him? Are we striving to love him? Or are we rejecting him even when we know what's right? This seemed like an appropriate time for communion. I know it's in the middle of the message. It might seem a little weird, but, but I couldn't think of a better time. As we talk about the vineyard, we go to the juice. As we talk about the stone that was rejected became the cornerstone. Jesus died for us on the cross. And every week we partake in communion. We, we eat the bread and drink the juice to remind us of his body hanging on the cross, to remind us of his blood poured out for us. And let us be reminded that this This act on the cross was the cornerstone. The cornerstone for our salvation. The cornerstone for our forgiveness. As Jesus closes his parable and and the crowd is just in awe. They have no clue what's to come in a few days. That Jesus would be rejected and be the cornerstone that the church would be built on. So we're going to take a couple of minutes here in the middle of the message. We have communion stations around the room. Feel free, go grab your communion. If you're watching at home, grab your communion and, and take together. That at this time, just whenever you feel led, open the cup, eat the bread. Spend some time with this foundation. Foundation of our faith, the foundation of our salvation, the foundation of our forgiveness. Let me pray for this time of communion. God, we just ask that you'd be over this time, that you'd speak into our hearts the next couple of minutes, that we'd find peace in you. God, we lift this up in your name. Amen. There's a saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We're about to see that in this chapter. We're about to see that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and we see that when two groups come together that that hate Jesus, and these two groups are groups that would normally not get along, and so we're about to see that they come together to try to trick Jesus. In doing so, we have this story, and we're going to, and Jesus will talk about a Roman coin, and so we actually have uh, these Roman coins, and we're going to pass it around. Uh, I think Tim's going to start, and we're going to pass it from this side on over, and and uh, it's a, a replica of the coin. I didn't go back in my Wayback Machine and get one 2,000 years ago. But uh, it's a, a replica of this coin, and I just want you to look at it, to feel it, to see.
see what it was like. Uh, if you're worried about touching it, then just act like you're asleep or deep in prayer, and they'll pass it over you, and it'll be all right. But we are passing these coins, and, and uh, when it gets to this end, if we can give it to Tim, because second hour is going to be upset if they don't get any. So, um, so we see these two enemies come together, these two groups that normally wouldn't get along, and they come trying to trap Jesus. Verse 13 says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to those who, to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're trying to flatter him. These are the same people try, that are plotting to kill him. So don't get caught up in like these compliments, right? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? This was a great debate at the time. This imperial tax was like a census tax. It was a tax that Rome had on the Jewish people, and it was a tax. It wasn't because Rome needed the money. This was more of a symbolic tax. It was a small tax, but it was on each individual person, and it was paid to Caesar. The point of this tax was to say, you are under Caesar's authority. He is your ruler. And so there was this great debate among the Jews, should we pay this? We're to have no ruler besides God. And so there's great upheaval and people are upset. And so you have these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were great religious leaders. They were very uh, traditional. They were very set in the Jewish ways. And so they were against paying Caesar. Because we, we were to have no other leader besides God. We were to have no other, no other king besides Yahweh. And so they have this idea that we shouldn't pay any taxes. We shouldn't give anything to Rome. But then you have the Herodians. The, the Jews that are for the Roman government. The Jews that are kind of uh, playing the game. The Jews that are okay with being under Rome's influence. Being, uh, uh, being, seeing the benefits, the protection of Rome. And so this group would be all for paying the tax because it says if we're under this land, we should pay it. And so you have these two groups that are vastly different on this topic. This is what I was talking about. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Because these two are enemies on this topic, but they're both against Jesus. And they realize we have him. We could trap him here. If we got this whole crowd, if he says that we shouldn't pay the tax... Then the Roman government will be upset, they'll arrest him for, for speaking out against the Roman rule, and we'll be, and we'll be done with him. If he says we should pay this tax, then the people are going to be upset and they'll turn their back on him. We got him. They think they finally trapped him in a way that would make it clear. And so they, they present this question to him. Verse 15 says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. So this denarii is, is a small little Roman coin. Uh, it, on the front side is a picture of the current Roman emperor. In this case, it would have been Tiberius. And, and on the front it says, Tius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. And, and that's obviously not written in English, but, and, but this is what it says. And then on the back side it has a picture and, and it says, High priest written on it. Even on this coin, there's great issues that the Jews would have. Because it's saying that the great, the great one, it says the, the son of the divine Augustus. This Augustus wasn't just a name, it was a title given to this emperor's father. 
And so this title is August One. It means divine. It means appointed one from the heavens. And so this coin is saying that it's not just this is our Roman leader, this is our political leader. It's saying this is our religious leader. That this is the one that we would turn to, that we believe is our God. This is the one that we would turn our faith to. Not just our political leader, but, but our religion needs to be revolved around Rome. And so to have this coin is great a blasphemy. To have this coin... It's idolatry. On the back, it has a picture, and it says high priest, and it's a picture of, of the emperor's mother-in-law, of the emperor's mother. And even that is blasphemy. How can she be the high priest? We have one religious leader, and it is Yahweh. So everything about this coin is misleading. Everything about this coin is against the ways of the Jews. Everything against this, about this temple tax or about this imperial tax is against what they believe in. And so Jesus asked them, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. And so they do. It says they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image on it and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. If we didn't know, if we didn't look deep into the story, we would miss the incredible sharp wit of Jesus in this story. I don't know if you remember the setting, but they're in the temple. The temple crowd is all around him, and the, the religious leaders are coming trying to trick him, and they've come up, and they say, hey, we got a question for you. Are we supposed to pay the tax to, to Rome? And he says, tell you what, give me a coin. And the, one of the priests pulls out this coin, and he hands him the denarii, and he says, who's on this? And they say, Caesar, this is the temple. These are the holy grounds. This is the area of Jerusalem that has been set aside and sanctified for God. This is an area that you would not bring in any idolatry. This is an area that you would not bring in anything of Rome. This is an area that we would not bring in anything that is impure. There was a great ritual of purification you had to go in before you even entered the temple. That you would cleanse yourself with a, a certain washing of hands. That if, if ladies were menstruating, they wouldn't be able to enter. That there's this whole ritual of regulations just to enter into the temple because this is a holy place. Part of that procedure is if you had any money, you would exchange it for temple money outside. You would exchange this, these coins that have Caesar's image on it, this idolatry, get rid of this, and you would purchase holy temple coins that had gods and that were focused on God. And this is what you would bring in the temple to be able to purchase a, a sacrifice, to purchase a, a dove that you would sacrifice to, to make an offering. To have this in the temple was idolatry. To have this in the temple was blasphemy. And who has it? The very ones that are implementing these rules. Who has it? The very ones that are supposed to be our religious leaders. The ones that are supposed to set the example for us. He turns to these chief priests, to the Pharisees, to the Herodians and says, Hey, do you have a coin? And sure enough, they all quickly pull out their wallets and they give him some money. Jesus says, whose image is on that? At that, I got to think there's this gasp. Everyone's like, oh, Jesus got you again. And the religious are like, Caesar's. They're not supposed to even have this in there. They're not following God's ways. They're not striving to live a holy life. So Jesus then, after he's caught them, 
gives them an amazing saying, one that we've all heard. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Love that line, they were amazed because they saw, we thought we had him. Surely this was going to be the one. He'd either upset Rome or he'd upset the people. And he ended up making us look like fools. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I'm sure he gives back this denarii. As he says, he hands it back, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God's what is God's. And sure, at this moment, they're talking about a coin, right? This coin isn't meant to be here in the temple. Give this to Caesar. When we go outside, you pay your taxes. Do what you're supposed to do with that coin. But in here in the temple, give God your best. Give God the temple money. Give God the, the, your respect. Make this place a place that's holy. But this message, I think, is so much beyond coins, this line, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, is such a big statement beyond the coin of the day. What is Caesar's? The things of this world. I think he's talking this message to you and me. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to the world what is the world's. We get so caught up in possessions and materialism. We get so caught up in, in, in money and in the trying to get more, trying to get more. Let that be the world's. Give to the world was the world's that we get so caught up in finding just the right job or finding the right position or getting the status or the prestige. That we're trying to get everyone to look up to us and, and be the best one in the neighborhood, to be the best one in the class, the best one on the team. Let our egos go aside. Give the world what is the world's. That those things that we find in our addictions those relationships that are unhealthy, let those go. They have the world's mark on them. They have Caesar's image on them. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But to God, what is God's? What is God's? Let me tell you. There's this idea in Latin, it's the imago Dei, the divine image. And this, uh, this idea is throughout Scripture. I'll give you a couple examples. Genesis, very beginning, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 5, this is written account of Adam's line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Jump to Colossians 3.10 for New Testament. And they've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This idea of the image of God is all throughout scripture that we are created in God's image. That you and me look at the person next to you and sure enough, that's God's image. Look at yourself. This is God's image. Give to the world what is the world's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What's it look like to give to God what is God's? And be given ourselves. Giving our lives. Letting this be what is God's. I picture Jesus is there and he says this. He hands that coin back. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
But then he's looking at this crowd, this crowd that is God's people. He's looking at this crowd of Herodians and Pharisees that are going to plot to kill him. And he sees the image of God. When he looks at you and me, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our shortcomings. He doesn't see our mistakes. He doesn't see all those things. He sees the image of God. So what do we see? Do we see that we are God's image? And what are then we showing? So often I feel like we show Caesar's side, right? We try to show a, a bigger car. We try to show fancier things. We try, try to show our status. Uh, we try to show this or that that the world thinks is holy. What if we focused on trying to show God's love? What if we focus on trying to show the image of God in us? This week, I want to challenge you that, that right now, I want you to think. And there's going to be an example for each one of us, and for all, each of us it's going to be different. But what is that moment this week that you already know is going to be a difficult moment? That it's really difficult to show the image of God at. Right? That, that that time your boss comes down on you for no reason or that coworker tries to stab you in the back again. That time that your neighbor that's always complaining. That time that the fellow student that picks on you all the time, it's really hard to show God's image in those moments. Perhaps it's at home, it's, it's just your kids are driving you nuts. Perhaps that moment is going to come in 15 minutes when you go pick up your child. That is just hard to relay this image of God. What is that moment? in the next day or two days or three days. We're all going to have one. And to close out this message, I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. That we'd be able to pray that we could reflect God's image. Give to God what is God's in those difficult situations. At that moment that you just want to yell at the top of your lungs, that moment that you want to get angry, that moment that, that maybe it's your, your ex is interfering with the way you're raising your kids, that moment that your boss is coming down on you for no reason, whatever that is, what if we reflected the image of God to that person? What if we gave to God what is God's? And what is God's is us. That coin at Caesar's image, you have God's image. How amazing is that? So if you will, pray with me and then we'll close out with, with worship. If, if you could just stand, if you'll stand right now and let me pray over you and pray over me that I could reflect God's image at those hard times that I'm going to face. God, I just lift this up, this, this request to you that each one of us is going to find that moment. That moment might be today and the next few minutes, that moment, be, moment might be in a couple days, but that moment where we just want to lash out, when we want to act the way of the world. But God, let us reflect your image. God, I pray that as everyone's thinking of that specific moment that they know is ahead this week. That anger wouldn't feel their hearts right now, but love. That a desire to, to bring you glory, a desire to reflect your image, would fill who they are. God, I lift this up in your name.